welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is sponsored by Hiya Chewable Kids Vitamins. It's a new company I found that my kids are extremely excited about. Did you know that most typical children's vitamins are essentially just candy in disguise? Many have as much as two teaspoons of sugar, along with some food dyes, some other unhealthy chemicals, or gummy junk that kids should probably never eat and that dentists would probably agree with. Haya is the complete opposite. It fills the most common gaps in children's diets with full body nourishment and a yummy taste they love without any of that junk. While most children's vitamins might contain as much as five grams of sugar and can cause a variety of health issues, Haya has created a zero sugar, zero gummy, junk-free vitamin that tastes great and as my kids will attest is delicious. It's perfect even for picky eaters. Also importantly, it's manufactured in the U.S. with globally sourced ingredients, each selected and screened for optimal bioavailability and absorption. What's cool is they send this to your door on the pediatrician recommended schedule and the first month you get a reusable glass bottle that you can personalize with stickers so every month thereafter they send a no plastic refill pouch which means it isn't just good for your kids it's also good for the environment and it reduces waste my kids love the little glass jar that the vitamins are in and i love how it's low waste you can find out all about them and their sourcing and the many benefits by going to hiyahealth.com forward slash wellness mama. That's H I Y A health.com forward slash wellness mama. This podcast is brought to you by Wellness, my new personal care company that is based on the recipes I've been making at home in my own kitchen for over a decade. Many clean products simply don't work. And this is exactly why I spent the last decade researching and perfecting recipes for products that not only eliminate toxic chemicals, but that contain ingredients that work better than their conventional alternatives and that nourish your body from the outside in. I'm so excited to finally get to share these products with you. And I wanted to tell you all about our brand new dry shampoo, which is our newest product. It can be used various ways, including you can sprinkle in clean hair, to add volume and also extend the time between washes. You can sprinkle it in uh, hair that hasn't been washed in a day or two to absorb oil or sweat. And you can work it into color treated hair to maintain color by not having to wash as often. It contains oil absorbing kale and clay and volume boosting tapioca, which work together to refresh hair at the roots. Lavender oil and cactus flour help to balance the scalp and to keep the hair's natural pH. And we added hibiscus for healthy hair growth. You can check it out and try it at wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. And my tip is to grab a bundle and save with the built-in discount that comes with a bundle. Or if you subscribe and save, you can save on any order. So again, check it out, wellness.com. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. My new line of good for your body personal care products that nourish you from the outside in. And our newest is dry shampoo that provides the nutrients that your hair and scalp need to be healthy. I'm here with someone I deeply admire and am incredibly grateful for. Dr. Alan Christensen is a naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid function, and specifically Hashimoto's, which I had, hypothyroidism, and Graves' disease. He's been actively practicing since 1996, and he's the founding physician behind Integrative Health, as well as a New York Times bestselling author, 
and a dear friend of mine. He was the first doctor that started me on my own path to healing from Hashimoto's. And it was how I actually received my initial diagnosis. And I will forever be grateful to him for his work and his education and for all the things he did that helped me in my recovery and that he's now also done for thousands of people in his years of practice. He is an incredible researcher, incredible uh, practitioner, and also one of the more incredible people I've ever met in my life. It's always an honor to share him with you. And in this episode, we go deep on, of course, thyroid health, but also things like iodine. And especially if you have any kind of thyroid condition, why iodine might be a little more nuanced than you think it is and why you might actually need less and not more. And he also goes through a lot of the data from his clinical experience and his research on how to get thyroid levels back into normal range and some confounding factors that aren't always considered. As always with Dr. Christensen, very fact-packed episode. I learned a lot and this is a topic I research a lot. So without further ado, I can't wait for us to join Dr. Christensen. Dr. Christensen, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hey, Katie. Super glad to be with you. It's always an honor to speak with you in person or especially here. I, a lot of people have heard your name because you were the first person who really helped me on my path to recovery, actually to diagnosis with Hashimoto's and then to recovery. And I leaned very heavily on you and your work in those, especially those early few years of trying to figure everything out. And you have been such a valuable resource now for so many people I know, both personally and as listeners and, and readers of my work and of your work. And I feel like there's just always so much more to talk about when it comes to the topic of thyroid in general, but especially right now, we're still seeing a lot of thyroid-specific problems on the rise, and I know that you have done an extraordinary amount of research and clinical work with people in recovering from Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism and Graves' disease, and it just seems like, if, especially someone new to this, there's just so much information out there. And I know I was overwhelmed when I first yeah. started trying to find answers. And I hear from so many listeners who are in that early diagnosis phase, or maybe they are even like past a diagnosis and still just having trouble trying to figure out how to get the right pieces in order toward recovery for them. So I think there's a, a thousand different things we can touch on in, in this episode, <laughs> but one that is especially important to me right now that I want to make sure we tackle first is the idea of iodine. Um, and to start broad, and then I, I have some very specific follow-ups related to this, but some common knowledge when someone starts just Googling, I have thyroid issues, is take lots of iodine. Uh, like low thyroid means you probably need more iodine. And I know that you have written about this and educated about this, but walk us through why it's so much more nuanced than just we need more iodine. Yeah, yeah. Great question. You know, nutrients in general, they, they serve a particular role, and if they're not there, that role can't work. And I think the best analogy I've ever thought of is, is just like keys for your car. You know, if you've got no keys, your car won't move. <laughs> that's, but if you got the keys, the car is turned over, but it's not running well, the problem, the answer is not more keys. You know, that, that solves one particular type of thing. And that's true for nutrients in general, but for iodine, it's even more so. So what it comes down to is that there's a window in which we need some, but we can get too much or too little. And either end of the spectrum can be a real problem for thyroid disease. That's such a great analogy, and it makes so much sense. I know we've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes, but there's also a lot of other, I guess the analogy would be keys in that equation, besides just iodine as well when it comes to thyroid health, right? For sure. And the funny thing is that I just mentioned how that there's a range of tolerance we have for iodine. And everyone, there's a little bit of difference from person to person, but also those prone to thyroid disease, 
in general, they inherently have a lower range. You know, they're ones that are more apt to have problems if they get too much or too little. And there are some ways in which that's hardwired and there's some ways in which that can be changed. And one of them you just brought up is other keys or other nutrients. So uh, selenium is probably first to the list. Uh, iron and zinc are relevant. And past that point, any essential micronutrient you can think of has some role in thyroid health. So the more someone is lacking in those key nutrients, the more narrow their window becomes and the more easily their thyroid function can be disturbed by the wrong amounts of iodine. That makes sense. Okay. So when it comes to iodine, walk us through that. How can we know, like, how can we regulate that? What do we need to know about how much we need or, or if we're getting too much? Well, it's a fascinating thing. And I wish I could just say, do a simple test. There's a lot of really good tests that measure iodine levels and they work at a population level, but few of them really translate into an individual level. So here's what I mean. Uh, if you're measuring 500 people, the ways in which a test could fluctuate really mean nothing for the population. You can still be accurate about what the population level is, even though for any one person, it might not pan out. If one person tests themselves, no exaggeration, over about 350 times, whether it's random urine, 24-hour urine, blood tests are different, but if you test yourself over 300 times, you can be within 95% confidence of your iodine status. So the tests, the tests aren't great. They're often misleading. The simplest generalization is what's typical for your population. And if we go back to 1992, we had 112 countries on planet Earth that were categorized as being severely iodine deficient. And those were areas in which, yeah, they had more thyroid disease, they had more goiter, uh, more nodule formation because of a lack. And if we take those same countries and go forward to 2014, that number goes from 112 down to zero. So 2014 to now, we now have no nations categorized as at severe deficiency, but we now have 52 nations categorized as at severe excess in which it can raise the risk of causing thyroid disease by the excess. And yeah, the United States is in that group. So as a generalization in the modern world, most people who are prone to thyroid disease or developing thyroid problems have more to gain by reducing iodine than to gain than to raising it. That definitely does seem to go against at least what you know some of the mainstream sources that someone could Google and find seem to present. And this was something I found as well and something that I've learned from you and then also from self-experimentation. And I know that this is something that you and I recently touched base on a little bit and I want to go deep on now is that you've said that people can have their thyroid function improve completely or at least by a lot by closely regulating their iodine intake, specifically bringing it below a certain level. And I find this fascinating. And it's something I found as well. I think for me, I had to undo a lot of years of realizing I had symptoms of thyroid problems and trying to take iodine or kelp or different things to fix it. So I had to kind of probably let my body normalize for a long time after that. But explain why you think that is and what that means. So it's pretty exciting. And yeah, you mentioned how there are disparate views people can find, and that's totally true. In academic uh, research, hard, the fact-based world, whatever you want to call it, there's a pretty strong consensus on all these things I'm going to say. There are some different views that emerged about uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and they've still maintained some popularity. But yeah, by and large, there's pretty clear consensus about this in the scientific community. And what happened was that in two, 2007, we had the 100-year anniversary of Dr. Hiroko Hashimoto's work. And he identified that most thyroid disease was caused by immune cells. 
And so researchers said, well, it's been 100 years, you know, what do we have to add to his work? You know, what more have we brought to the table? And they, they really felt, uh, felt like they were coming up short. There were some big surveys done showing that most people diagnosed have not gotten anywhere near as much better as they would have liked, and they're pretty frustrated. You know, a big number of them have seen 10 or more doctors, pretty sadly. So they dug deep and said, what can we explain about this? And that launched some new clinical trials. It also launched a lot of reanalysis of existing work. And amongst the clinical trials, some were done on lower iodine diets. And what they, what they found is that thyroid disease, yes, it is by and large autoimmune. The old model was that once the immune system really got the hang of attacking the thyroid, the horse was out of the barn and it wouldn't stop. You know, it would just keep on going as long as it could. But the new perspective is that, no, it turns out that small amounts of extra iodine stay trapped inside the thyroid and they basically irritate the cells. You know, it's, uh, iodine is one of the most volatile, oxidative, active compounds that there is. In terms of elements, you know, like nutritional elements, you've got calcium, magnesium, zinc. If you look on the periodic table of elements, iodine is way down by itself. It's much more active as far as an element occurs. And an excess of it makes the thyroid proteins look foreign. It, it makes them create high amounts of free radicals. So as long as there's too much of them there, the immune system identifies thyroid proteins as being like invaders or bacteria and it keeps attacking them. But what's been super exciting about this new, I call it the thyroid renaissance stage is that we now know these, this process can stop. And for many people, those cells can heal and the gland has a much better chance of working on itself again than we ever thought in the past. That's fascinating. And I think so hopeful because that's another thing that I've seen in my own life, but a lot of people I think don't necessarily realize is that a lot of that damage can be undone and that you can recover. So let's talk a little bit more about that because I know in the early days of thyroid diagnosis for me, it seemed overwhelming and a little bit helpless until I really realized how the body was going to be capable of healing and how to support that. And I know you've worked with literally thousands of people on this. So for anyone who's in that part of a diagnosis, like what, what advice would you give and what would you say as far as the body's ability to heal? Yeah, so there's two, two parallel answers I always want people to think about. One of which is how much better can your thyroid do by itself? And the other is, can you feel as well as you did before this started? And the second one, you know, can you feel better again? Is it just a yes across the board? You know, for some people that'll also include replacement therapy for thyroid medication. For some, it won't. Now, for the first answer, can your thyroid work better by itself? Well, some people, their thyroid was taken out. And I would, I would like to say that's universally a case in which their thyroid can never work better again. But I've actually had patients in which their thyroid tissue has regrown. Um, obviously, trace amounts were left behind. It's come back again. So that's not common by any means. But, but yeah, by and large, when the gland was taken out, you can expect longer-term replacement necessary. And with Hashimoto's, there's two main types of it. In one type, the gland swells and gets bumpy. We call that the goitrogenic. And the other type, the gland shrivels and gets holes in it. We call that the atrophic. So if the atrophic version, if it's shriveled down to nothing, it can be almost like the gland has been taken out. And in those cases, it may not regrow again. But what we do see is that the iodine status, it not only affects how likely your thyroid is to regrow, but also affects how your body responds to thyroid hormones. So there's a lot of people who are on medication, but they don't feel like they're better. You know, they've got a lot of the same symptoms they had before they started. And they can have some level of resistance to thyroid hormone. 
or maybe they only feel kind of okay if they're taking what seems like too much, you know. But those cases too, regulating iodine can make the body respond better. And the, the rate of response is just super encouraging. You know, one of, the, one of the relevant studies took people that had thyroid disease for average of about four years. And to a pretty marked degree, they were pretty severely hypothyroid, like not at all subtle, like way outside of range. And they did only the iodine regulation. And they saw that within three months, 78.3% had totally normal thyroid function. So most everyone. But then I looked really deep and well, who didn't respond? You know, so of those who didn't respond, they took those people. And I mentioned before how there's no really good test to see where your iodine status is. You can test well enough to see whether your body is building up your iodine, uh, breaking it even, or lowering, whether it's moving down, right? So they took those who didn't respond and they checked to see if they were where they wanted to be to where they were lowering their iodine. And most of them weren't. So they just, they didn't get better because they just actually, they, were, they must have missed some sources. Maybe they weren't educated well enough about some things to look out for. So yeah, that's one reason they didn't. Uh, of those who just, the other group who didn't respond, they actually did, but they weren't yet normal. They came from a severe state of disease, close to normal, but they just hadn't had time to play out all the way. And in the, in the studies that have been done, only a few percent of people that did get to a range in which they were lowering their iodine uh, didn't, didn't improve. So the consistency is quite high. Wow, that's really fascinating. Okay, so one of those groups you mentioned that they had missed some sources or they thought they were iodine, but they weren't. Um, on a practical level, when we need to lower iodine, obviously the, the obvious one is don't take iodine, but I'm yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that. And, and also probably there's trace iodine in certain supplements and in, we know in foods. So what does someone need to know if they're trying to consciously lower their Yeah, you mentioned a great point. First thing is yeah, just don't take it. And it's in so many products and it, it can look like the amounts are small, but because it's such a volatile compound, that affects it not just in the body, but also in supplements. You know, one big survey looked at, they, they took popular supplements and then assayed for iodine content and compared the assay results to what was on the label. And not one out of 120 products was within 5% of its targeted amounts. And many had three or four times more than they were supposed to have. So yeah, just don't take things that have iodine on the label. That's an easy first step. The densest dietary source by far is something that's common for some, but not all, and that's sea vegetables. And they do have some other minerals in them, which they can have some positive contribution in that sense, but they've got so much iodine that they're just unsafe to take regularly for those with thyroid disease. A couple of things that listeners probably wouldn't hear otherwise, uh, salts are a big factor, and they're one of the easiest parallel trades because there's tons of great salt options that are essentially iodine-free. Uh, kosher, kosher salts are good that way. Uh, I have no company affiliations, but Celtic brand and Malden brand sea salt are a couple that are relatively iodine free. So the Celtic light gray, especially. Uh, and yeah, kosher ones are really good, like Morton's and also Diamond brand kosher salt. One thing that you'd really not come across commonly is just the, the relative contribution of iodine from cosmetics. There are a lot of things that we would apply to our, our skin that can carry high amounts as well. That's fascinating. And that's not actually one I've even really thought about. Um, what are some things to watch out for there when, we, when it comes to topical and cosmetic? Well, the biggest single ingredient is, is PVP. And there, there's also a lot, of, a lot of seaweed extracts. And they're, they're really useful ingredients. I mean, they, they make lotions nice and smooth. They 
keep them from growing bacteria. They give them a good texture. They keep ingredients emulsified. So they're incredibly useful. But when you run the math on iodine, you know, even a tiny amount of an ingredient that has like say 12% iodine, you'll absorb about four and a half percent of that across your skin. So you could take a, and there's a lot of things like, for example, like mascara to where they're quite rich in iodine containing ingredients, but I can't imagine there's any substantial amount entering your body. You know, there's a, like a few flecks that go on your eyelashes. So there's probably some, but, but then you contrast that to something like a body lotion to where you could easily have 20, 30 grams that, that contact your skin and you absorb the bulk of that. So yeah, in those cases, like body lotions, conditioners, face creams, the amounts can be quite relevant. Uh, just a couple of years ago, the FDA banned the use of iodine for hand sanitizers. What they were seeing was that many hospital workers were developing complications from excess iodine exposure. They're using this stuff all day long. And they're now looking at that role in cosmetics. They've not acted yet, but we do know that that's a concern as well for those who are prone to thyroid disease. And that's interesting. From the medical perspective, iodine is also a substance they use at different times, right, to sanitize or like to sterilize before a surgical procedure? They have, and that's, that's being phased out. It's mostly been phased out in terms of a topical sanitizer. Yeah, it had so many roles in medicine because it is, you know, think about like bleach. I mean, bleach is a great antiseptic, but you don't want to drink it. <laughs> you don't want to bathe in it. And iodine, it's, it's actually, you know, chlorine and iodine are both similar, similar atoms. They're, they're both halides. They both act in the same ways. And yeah, we used it for tons of stuff in medicine, but now contrast agents, uh, we, we've tried to find non-iodine versions. Uh, it was used a lot as a expectorant, you know, back when for coughs and colds, that's completely gone by the wayside. And more and more for topical sanitizers, it's basically been replaced as well. Got it. And I love that you brought up the sea salt equation. I'll put links. I love molten salt and Celtic salt. Have you used the Malden smoked salt? I haven't tried that one yet, but I love the regular one. It's such a mild, amazing flavor. The, the regular one, they're, they're, both, they're both finishing salts. So like they're these like snowflakes, like these super, super fine flakes you just drizzle on at the end and you get the crunch and the taste. Yeah, check out their smoked. It's absolutely insanely good. <laughs> I absolutely will. Um, okay, so also you mentioned it, it seems like there's a, a time period it takes for people to come back into normal range if they've been consuming iodine or their levels have been high. So if it's someone's been taking iodine or taking things with iodine and is maybe realizing this is something they need to correct, how fast can that normalize typically? And are there things we can do to help it move back into range more quickly? Yeah, for sure. So some who have been taking it in supplemental form, it can be quite a bit, quite a bit longer. And what happens is there's really no way or for getting rid of iodine apart from your thyroid excreting it. And most of what it excretes, it puts out in hormone. So if you're not making a lot of thyroid hormone, you're not getting rid of a lot of iodine. And on the other hand, your thyroid can't release a lot of extra thyroid hormone to dump iodine without harming your body. So there's just a speck that's called non-hormonal iodine that is secreted. And that can be as little as a few micrograms per day. It ends up in the urine ultimately. So if someone's been taking high amounts, it could be three, six, nine months outside a year. There's a medication called amiodarone that's kind of the poster child for this. And it can take actually a year and a half to have the complications from the medicine clear up. But that's about worst case scenario. Much more common when the excess is not so much from like iodine supplements per se, but more so iodine in other supplements like iodine in multis, you know, iodine in dietary sources, cosmetics. In those cases, we're typically thinking about 
you know, three to six month time frame. And speeding, speeding that up, you know, biggest thing is maintaining good status of micronutrients. And of those, selenium really is just top of the list. Uh, many of the ways in which the body does regulate the breakdown and release of iodine, the thyroid hormones, does just grind to a standstill if there's too little selenium present. Are there any concerns with selenium on upper limits? Uh, is that one generally considered safe for thyroid patients? And how can we know how to get in the optimal range with that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've thought long and hard about that answer. Uh, there have been some cases of selenosis, of people being toxic from selenium. I've actually seen that clinically. There was once a man that had symptoms, including a thing called gingival stippling, which is like these blue lines in the gums. I was sure that he was going to show up positive for lead poisoning, but it was actually selenium poisoning. So that's not a common problem, but people can take too much from supplements. There's different forms of selenium in supplements and in foods. And by and large, supplemental forms are safe up to a couple hundred micrograms per day. If you're supplementing above 400 micrograms per day, you can slow your thyroid. You know, you can actually slow things down and work in the wrong direction. Now, foods, there's, there's a pretty obscure thing called paradise nuts, which are from South America. And they have a version of, of selenium, which is more of an oxide. And they're classic for causing selenium poisoning. Now, on the other hand, we've got Brazil nuts, which are also from South America. And it's so funny because they're just about as rich in selenium as paradise nuts, but there's a different chemical form of selenium called selenocysteine. And up until this one paper was done, I've still been cautious about getting too much from Brazil nuts, but a paper was done. I actually wish they didn't do it because I think it wasn't a safe thing to do, but now that we have the data, so... They, they gave these preschool kids who were malnourished, they gave them roughly about a quarter of their diet's calories from Brazil nuts. So like for an adult, it would be about like 30 to 50 nuts per day, like a lot. And they measured them in all these ways for general health, but also for selenium status. And all the ways of selenium elimination, you know, urinary, hair levels, nail levels, were all extremely high. But all the markers of selenium health were fine. You know, their, their body was able to get rid of the excess and they were actually a lot healthier than their peers that weren't on the same diet. So if anyone would have gotten sick from too much selenium from Brazil nuts, it would have been these poor malnourished kids, but they did not. So once that was shown, more researchers looked at the distinct role of selenocysteine from that particular food. So you really, you really aren't going to overdose from them. <laughs> I encourage two to four today, two to four per day as an easy insurance. And yeah, the amount they have certainly can vary from batch to batch, season per season, but you won't get, you won't get a harmful excess from them. Good to know. That's really helpful. I know that was one of the things you recommended to me early on, along with broccoli sprouts for the sulforaphane, which are still yeah. a part of my life and something I feel like an easy thing to grow even in the winter at home. And yeah, I love that. Make sure you, I know you've written about some of these things too, and I'll make sure I link to those in the show notes for people who want to go deep on any of these um, topics. Another thing that I always kind of think of in relation to this, the same mineral equation, and I'm curious, I don't actually know your take on this, but I seem to have found for me that for a long time I wasn't probably getting enough minerals, specifically actually from salt. And so I think I avoided the iodized salt and then kind of by default avoided salt. And in more non-iodized salt and even um, like mineral thing, other types of minerals really made a difference for me. And I'm curious, is that um, something that's commonly seen in thyroid patients? That's not, that's not uncommon. So overall salt intake can be a relevant thing for 
blood pressure regulation, you know, relevant to adrenal health, and other minerals can be big factors. And of those, you know, again, pretty much anyone you shake a stick at, you can draw a good connection between its levels and thyroid function. Uh, selenium, super well documented. Iron is a lot of data around that. Zinc, uh, magnesium, but iron is iron is probably next up after selenium, and especially in in the demographic most prone to thyroid disease. You know, adult women. There's been papers showing that about 84% of women with thyroid disease are not necessarily anemic. Many are, but they're below iron levels that allow for optimal function. You know, a lot of the Thyroid proxtase, for example, one of the enzymes that helps make thyroid hormone, that's a iron uh, or a heme dependent enzyme, as are many other proteins involved with thyroid hormone production and utilization. So yeah, iron is very critical. And what they've shown is that there's stages of getting low in iron that culminate in a loss of red blood cells, also known as anemia. So if you can't make blood cells anymore, that's like the last stage of it. But before then, First, you get compromised in how much you've got of cells to fluid, and then how much you can make hemoglobin. And then the first thing that tends to go is how much iron you've got in storage. We call that your ferritin in terms of blood levels. And most labs say you're normal down to nine nanograms per mil of ferritin. There's been published data saying that people with thyroid disease, because of the interactions of iron and thyroid function, this is kind of odd, but they can develop symptoms if they dip below somewhere around 50 to 60 for ferritin but they may not resolve symptoms until they correct up to 100 nanograms per mil for ferritin. So that's really non-intuitive. So yeah, nine is normal. And you may develop symptoms like fatigue or hair loss or poor depth of sleep or headaches if you've got thyroid disease and you dip below 50 or 60, but they may not resolve until you move back up above 100. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that high. Um, I'm curious too, because I know my ferritin tends to trend high and there's been concerns about like having hyperiranemia is that but you're saying like up to 100 is still within a safe range for sure yeah when you're getting way above 200 250 we think first and foremost about there being excess ferritin and storage and that can come from a lot of things any low level of inflammation can cause that um, some some that are prone to fatty liver syndrome can see that show up there's also anemias of chronic disease and, and then there are hemochromatosis, and that's where just genetically people store too much iron. That's rather less common amongst the different scenarios, but, but yeah, higher ferritin it doesn't always mean too much iron. It can just mean some type of vague inflammation. What about just serum iron? So serum iron is kind of an in-between marker. So you've got, in terms of sequence, the first abnormality you've got would be what's called latent iron depletion, stage one. And that's where ferritin's below optimal. Serum iron is normal. Hemoglobin, hematocrit, and red counts, they're all normal. Then, then we've got latent iron depletion stage two. That's where serum iron starts to dip down. But hemoglobin, hematocrit, and blood counts are still normal. So it's actually not anemic still. They're not, there's not a compromise in oxygen carrying capacity, but there is a compromise in the availability of iron for its direct chemical roles. Got it. That makes sense. Just out of pure personal curiosity. I'm also just really interested in, in what about potassium? How does that come into play in this equation? And also choline. I don't know if there's any thyroid specific uh, implications here. I just know those were both big kind of game changers. Sure. Potassium is quite relevant with thyroid function. And it's kind of a funny one. So a lot of things that we know and understand are limitations of our ability to, to measure. And potassium is a, it's an anion that's mostly, win, in, it's a 
one of the electrolytes, it's mostly inside of our cells. So we measure potassium levels in the blood and they can be affected. Uh, sometimes just by things that have nothing to do with you, just by a blood sample that sits too long before it's analyzed, for example. But if it is compromised in the blood, it's, it's, a, later, it's a lagging later stage finding because most of it is inside the cells. We're measuring in the blood what's outside the cells. You'll see potassium in supplements, but not really enough to be relevant because they can't legally put more than 99 milligrams in supplements. And your body's using a budget of like three, four, five, six thousand milligrams per day. So yeah, so having healthy amounts of that, you know, general thought is that I think that's one of the big benefits of just high produce diets, you know, adding in lots of fruits and vegetables. For many people, bananas pop top of mind, but they're, they're fine, but they're really not exceptional. They're pretty, they're pretty typical for, you know, most any type of produce you can think of is a good source of that. And that's one of the best ways to help is by adding up a lot in your produce. In terms of choline, that's a non-essential nutrient. Uh, it's debated back and forth. The body can make it when things work well, but there are many circumstances in which it cannot be made well. And I, I briefly mentioned fatty liver disease. There's a lot of overlap between thyroid function and how well the liver can burn fuel versus how it stores fuel. And many cases, the liver is storing much more than it's burning. And it's just building up fuel in the form of triglyceride. And those cases can be amongst the circumstances in which choline cannot be well synthesized by the body. And we may be more dependent upon dietary sources of choline. So yeah, that, that can be relevant for thyroid function. Fascinating. Yeah, that was an equation I had to figure out um, over time. I still am somewhat sensitive to eggs. And so that's obviously the most common, easy source of choline. Um, so I've had a supplement and that's been really, really helpful for me. This episode is sponsored by Hiya Chewable Kids Vitamins. It's a new company I found that my kids are extremely excited about. Did you know that most typical children's vitamins are essentially just candy in disguise? Many have as much as two teaspoons of sugar, along with some food dyes, some other unhealthy chemicals, or gummy junk that kids should probably never eat and that dentists would probably agree with. Haya is the complete opposite. It fills the most common gaps in children's diets with full body nourishment and a yummy taste they love without any of that junk. While most children's vitamins might contain as much as five grams of sugar and can cause a variety of health issues, Haya has created a zero sugar, zero gummy, junk free vitamin that tastes great and as my kids will attest is delicious it's perfect even for picky eaters also importantly it's manufactured in the u.s with globally sourced ingredients each selected and screened for optimal bioavailability and absorption what's cool is they send this to your door on the pediatrician recommended schedule and the first month you get a reusable glass bottle that you can personalize with stickers so every month thereafter they send a no plastic refill pouch which means it isn't just good for your kids it's also good for the environment and it reduces waste my kids love the little glass jar that the vitamins are in and i love how it's low waste you can find out all about them and their sourcing and the many benefits by going to hiyahealth.com forward slash wellness mama. That's H-I-Y-A health.com forward slash wellness mama. This podcast is brought to you by Wellness, my new personal care company that is based on the recipes I've been making at home in my own kitchen for over a decade. 
many clean products simply don't work. And this is exactly why I spent the last decade researching and perfecting recipes for products that not only eliminate toxic chemicals, but that contain ingredients that work better than their conventional alternatives and that nourish your body from the outside in. I'm so excited to finally get to share these products with you. And I wanted to tell you all about our brand new dry shampoo, which is our newest product. It can be used various ways, including you can sprinkle in clean hair to add volume and also extend the time between washes. You can sprinkle it in uh, hair that hasn't been washed in a day or two to absorb oil or sweat. And you can work it into color treated hair to maintain color by not having to wash as often. It contains oil absorbing kaolin clay and volume boosting tapioca, which work together to refresh hair at the roots. Lavender oil and cactus flour help to balance the scalp and to keep the hair's natural pH. And we added hibiscus for healthy hair growth. You can check it out and try it at wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. And my tip is to grab a bundle and save with the built-in discount that comes with a bundle. Or if you subscribe and save, you can save on any order. So again, check it out, wellness.com. We've touched on several different labs. I'd love to, I know in our first podcast, we went really deep on this and I'll make sure that's linked so people can find it. But when it comes to thyroid disease in general, I get so many questions related to what should we be testing, which specific markers and what ranges should they be in? And this is another area where it seems like there are so many opinions. And I know personally, before I found you, I had been to several doctors who only test a couple of the different markers and have their version of what they consider normal. And if you're in that range, they don't consider you to have a thyroid problem and won't test anything beyond that. And I know we went in much more in depth when I started working with you. So if someone uh, is maybe in that place where I was and they think they might have thyroid issues, but they're trying to, to get a diagnosis or they're trying to, knowing they have thyroid issues, get to optimal, um, what should we be testing and, and what are the most important markers to get within what range? For sure. And a couple of high level thoughts to this. So I see some, some data points that come out in, in the, the popular natural thyroid world almost like an arms race of the, the, the better list of lab tests is the longest list of lab tests. <laughs> and, I, and I wouldn't agree with that. There are a lot of things that we can test that, you know, they may not really change things. You might just get charged a lot when your insurance doesn't want to cover them. So not, not every possible thing is necessarily good. Like reverse T3, for example, it's one that I don't encourage testing. And I could talk more about that. But then the other thought is, how do we decide what are optimal levels? And so one, one idea is, optimal should be in the middle of the reference range. And I, I push back on that. And I think that, that that's, a, that's a model, it's a theory that could seem to make sense, but is that really where healthy people have their scores? So most of us who focus on this, we put the most weight in how thyroid scores are in people that are clearly free of thyroid disease and thyroid symptoms. And there's a lot of data answering that question. So the, the best single test, if there's one test, which you'd want more than one, but the best single test would be TSH. That's the leading, the first indicator of a change in thyroid status. However, it's also the marker that has the most discrepancy between a normal range and the scores found in healthy people. So the normal range on most labs today is between about 0.4 and 4.5. When I started practicing, that was up to about 12. <laughs> so that's come down a bunch. But healthy people they have a very strong tendency to have their TSH scores on the lowest side of normal. 
Now, it's a backward indicator. So the lower it is, the more active your thyroid is. And the higher it is, the less active it is. So there, there is some leeway difference for pregnant, non-pregnant, uh, over 70, cardiovascular disease, you know, kidney function, pediatric for sure. But non, non-pregnant adults under 70, no obvious cardiovascular or kidney disease, there's pretty strong data. I'm sorry, one more thing would be existing thyroid enlargement or cancers can change the target too. But barring those things, there's a lot of data saying that somewhere between about 0.4 and 1.9 is where healthy people's TSHs tend to run. And, and yeah, there's a strong median score of close to one. So really close to one. So other tests that have become relevant for early detection of thyroid disease then become thyroid antibodies. There's three that are commonly used clinically. One is more germane to Graves' disease, which is called TSI, but the other two are more common, and that's antithyroglobulin, antithyroid peroxidase. Now, the antibodies, when they are positive, they do confirm the presence of autoimmune thyroid disease. And the generalization is that they're there because those proteins, the the protein and the enzyme, thyroglobulin and thyroid peroxidase, have become excessively iodinated. They've got too much iodine and the body's now attacking those. But the pitfall about those is that they can be absent in up to half of people with thyroid disease and they can come and go. So the difficulty with those is that if they are there, they do confirm autoimmunity, but if they're not there, they do not refute autoimmunity. That's a really big point. And they can precede severe thyroid disease by five or 10 years when they're present. A uh, couple other things that are good to look at. So the, the existing hormones the gland secretes, the T3 and the T4, the free form is most biologically active. They're more accurate. So free T3, free T4. In healthy people, kind of a curious thing, healthy people have low normal free T4 scores. They don't tend to be a mid-range or high range. And healthy people have a full range of T3 scores. There's some that argue that T3 has to be high normal. There's a lot of data saying that if your T3 is consistently high normal, you're more prone to weight gain and other chronic diseases. Healthy people have a big range of, of T3 scores. So yeah, so with thyroid disease, the first thing to emerge, if your antibodies are positive, would be the antibodies. But in half the cases, they're not positive. So past that, the second thing that happens is the TSH creeps somewhere above the optimal range of 1.9. And at severe abnormalities, the T3 and T4 can change, but they're generally not the leading indicators. They're more so the lagging indicators because they're buffered. And then the last one to mention would be thyroglobulin. And that's, that's a protein that just shows the rate of thyroid cell turnover. And if that's high, there's a higher risk of the gland enlarging or harboring a cancer or other issues like that. But those are the main blood markers. And then the last thing is just structural evaluation through ultrasound can be important. Thank you. I was taking notes to put in the uh, the show notes about all that. You said like thyroid antibodies, if they're there, that is a sign of thyroid disease, but people can have elevated antibodies long before they have symptoms. Is that one as a general rule that's just good to monitor with yearly labs to keep an eye on to make sure? You know, that's a great question. Um, I don't see strong reasons for that. You know, if it is nice to know if someone has thyroid disease through autoimmune causes and if their antibodies are positive, that does answer that question. But then, then our, the question you ask is, is it worth tracking the antibodies? And I see many people that they've, they've put a lot of energy onto that. The papers I read, I was just reading several today showing that the antibodies, they just don't correlate with disease progression. You know, one study showed that it was a group of, of children. They had celiac disease. Uh, they were 
One group went gluten-free, one group didn't successfully go gluten-free. Those that went gluten-free, their thyroid antibodies were lower than the other group, but they were no better in terms of their likelihood of developing thyroid disease. So there's many examples where the antibodies just don't relate to disease progression. There's a couple of small exceptions. There are some cases to where the antibodies can be in the many, many thousands and the gland can be inflamed and swollen, visibly so. In those cases, it can certainly be affecting just localized pain on the gland. And there are also a few papers showing that also extremely high antibodies of thyroid peroxidase may be a factor for fertility that's independent of other thyroid levels. So that if, if a woman is trying to get pregnant, she's watching her thyroid already, it's dialed in, but she's still not successful, and her TPO is just through the roof, that may be something to track. But in every other case, I can't find a lot of strong justification for tracking them. And plus, they, they can bounce up and down somewhat randomly. So, so yeah. Okay, that's fascinating. I know it's very hard in that, if anything, my lesson these last few years has been that health is so, so personalized. And I know that you'd probably agree with me in saying we're each our own primary healthcare provider. We have <laughs> the responsibility first. So I know there's always going to be variation, but do you, have you found any commonalities in your work of things that on a broad spectrum generally should be either avoided or focused on with thyroid disease um, that seem to be, in other words, either generally beneficial or generally harmful that people should also know to watch out for? You know, something that's been fascinating, I've, I've, I've been focusing a lot on these iodine levels and its relevance to thyroid disease. And over the years, something that's always puzzled me, I've seen many people that they've done various dietary changes and some have found them to be quite helpful. Others have found them to be not as helpful. And I've tried to see if there was just hard evidence to where there were recommendations I would make across the board. You know, for example, paleo diets or gluten-free diets or even vegan diets. There's some that have done any of these and had good success and others that have had mixed results. And I've not found strong mechanisms why anyone would work just inherently. But when I've reanalyzed re the diets considering iodine content, it's pretty easy to cut out some of those categories and end up stumbling onto a lower iodine diet. So the biggest dietary sources of iodine are gonna be, by far the biggest two single largest sources are gonna be dairy products and processed grains. And iodine's a contaminant in both of those cases. It's not innate to those foods, but they're generally the highest amounts. So you go paleo and those things are gone. You, know? you go gluten-free and a lot of that is gone. And if you're on a healthier vegan diet, and you're not doing like you know, vegan croissants or something, those things are gone as well. So yeah, many ways that you can cut out certain processed foods, you often inadvertently end up cutting out a lot of the extra iodine along the way. Oh, that's interesting. That's something people probably haven't considered is iodine being present in refined grains and dairy products. But I know also that certainly seems like a commonality um, that was really important for me, especially early on, and seems to be a recurring theme that removing those two foods is helpful, especially in that intensive healing phase, for sure. We touched on it a little bit, but I just want to make sure we really also like really highlight that point of that certainly it seems possible in my experience and it would seem like from those you have worked with for people to across the board improve how they feel with thyroid disease but you've also seen people actually fully recover as well and i always want to make sure we highlight that because it can seem like i mentioned kind of hopeless when you are first diagnosed uh, and that's why i'm so grateful for people like you who are helping people work through that process well yeah and it it does happen it can happen so now one pitfall to the listeners to be aware of is that if you are on thyroid treatment, you know, and you take some steps suddenly that are quite helpful, you know, you find maybe you were taking some thyroid supplements and I'm sorry, some iodine supplements, 
and that was a big part of slowing your thyroid, well, now your medication needs could change dramatically. And it's, it's unsafe to get a dose that's much higher than you need. So yeah, please do be aware that if you are making some big changes, your needs could shift and it might be necessary to have that adjusted and compensate for that. But the generalization is that your, your thyroid hormones are just life or death to be in the right range. And the body does all that it can to keep you from making too much. So I think about like, like current in the house, you know, like I, I'm not an electrician, but I don't know, I'm guessing that some of my breakers in the house, some of our wiring would, would go off if there's more than 10 amps, you know? So if you got like massive amounts of extra current, rather than burn down the house, you know, you've got stuff built in place to, to shut it off, to stop the current. And that's, that's kind of how iodine stops the thyroid, is that if there weren't a set of circuit breakers, all the extra iodine would just passively jam itself in the factory and crank out so much extra thyroid hormone that your heart would give out. Your body would be, over, would be stimulated to death in a matter of days. So rather than let that happen, we've got circuit breakers. And it's, it's called the Wolf-Chaikoff effect. But basically, it's a way that your body shuts down not only how much hormone you would make, but how your cells take up that hormone. And so on both ends, towards the goals of just feeling better, whether you're on medication or not, or helping your gland improve again, that can be shut off. And the body can get to a range in which it allows your thyroid to start to regrow cells, become more metabolically active, and it can allow the rest of your cells to take up that hormone better. So yeah, you can feel better. Uh, you, you can, you can see, many can see their thyroid function improve again, which is good. But again, you got to watch for it if you're on medications. But, but yeah, recovery is possible and more so than I ever thought so in the past. That's another really important point. I'm so glad you brought that up. So for someone who is working on healing, um, is that just a regular testing thing? Or how can someone know if they maybe are taking too much medication and need to go up or down? Yeah, it is testing. And that is looking at the TSH, especially in the free hormones. And a funny paradox is that this is not intuitive, but you'll hear about classic symptoms of too much or too little. So someone might have expectations that if they have too little, they'll be tired. And if they have too much, they'll be overstimulated. And that can happen. Or they can know that if they have too little, they could gain weight. And if they have way too much, they could have unhealthy weight loss. So it can seem intuitive to think that, oh, I'm not feeling well, I must need more. And the paradox is that you can have the same symptoms on too much or too little. So it's not always intuitive based upon, you could feel off, but not always know which way that is. So it's good, good to check. And then the other relevance to that is, too much or too little as a function of the TSH determines how much your thyroid is being stimulated to grow. So if you're ever getting too much hormone, one of many drawbacks is your thyroid is no longer being asked to work and it won't have a chance to regenerate and recover itself. It'll be stuck because the signal to cause it to grow new cells is going to get pushed lower and lower and lower to where it, it can't really do that. So both in terms of safety concerns and also just towards the goal of your thyroid working better, it's yet yeah, smart to watch, watch your labs and keep those to where the TSH is in that healthy, normal range and things are well balanced. What would be some of those symptoms someone might run into with too much or too little thyroid hormone? Well, they can be the same on each end. Uh, and that can be the fatigue issues. That can be easier weight gain, um, hair loss. That can also include a lot of digestive changes. I'll see that quite a bit. Gas, bloating, irregularity. Also changes with menstrual cycles. Uh, periods can get heavier, more erratic. Tremors, jitteriness, anxiety. And 
if you're far enough on one side or another, if you're just horribly hypo or horribly hyperthyroid, then the symptoms become more distinct. But yeah, at moderate levels, they're pretty, pretty interchangeable. So any of those types of symptoms can be tied to that. Got it. And as always, of course, our time flies by. Whenever, we, whenever I talk to you, I feel like I just sit here and take notes and learn so much. But I want to make sure we also touch on you have a new book coming out in a few months, and I'm going to absolutely have you back on when that launches to go deep on it. But I want to make sure we tell people about it today, especially if they can pre-order. Sure. And, and, they, and they can. This is the thyroid reset diet. And, and basically, the clinical trials on reversing thyroid disease with low iodine, they were good. They showed us the possibility of that, but they weren't really meant to be longer term diets. And they really weren't taking into account a lot of these other sources of iodine. And they weren't really made to be like comprehensive protocols per kit per se. So the thyroid reset diet, it is that. It's nutritionally complete. You know, you can do this if you're paleo or vegan or just a healthy eater, you can do fine that way. Good recipes. And it kind of walks you through the process on what to test when. And, you know, we also get a sense on how much recovery is possible for you personally. But I don't know. I mean, Katie, you've been, we've been friends for a long time and I, I've gushed about my excitement of various projects before, but I think I'm more excited about this than anything I've done in the past. I think this is going to be a total game changer for those with thyroid disease. Yeah, which we mentioned early in the episode is unfortunately still very much on the rise in today's world. And I, I'm sure all the stress right now is probably not helping very much. <laughs> um, I know that that's another thing I learned the hard way. And one of the factors I think I held out the longest on was realizing how important that stress and mental health equation is for thyroid health as well, or anything related to hormones really. But I love I love your research and I love how practical you make it. And like I've said on here multiple times, you were the first person to help me find answers and to give me hope. And it's always such an honor to share your work and to share you. Um, just very, very grateful for all the good that you put out into the world and all the people that you help. You went right back at you. You've been just a fountain of great guidance for some time and touching a lot of people and hugely respect that. And yeah, keep, keep it up. Oh, it's been a good thing. Well, thank you. And thank you as always for listening, for sharing your most valuable resource, your time with both of us today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.